Luke chapter 6 is where we're going to be at, of course, uh, this morning as we continue our, our, um, our, our track through, through the gospel of, of Luke. Last week we started um, a, a time where Jesus takes his, takes his boys and to a level ground and, and begins to teach them um, what has become known as this Sermon on the Plain. And it seems very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. Probably the same, could be the same event, could be different occurrences, but certainly the same content and the same kind of, um, same kind of ideas and things that Jesus is teaching us and, and trying to get across to his disciples as well as to, uh, uh, to us. So let me ask this, qu- this question. So we already know we're, what we're kind of talking about tonight or today, uh, love and Jesus. Um, I want to start off by asking this question. Does love change things? Does love change things? Pretty good question, right? Deep. It could be deep. It could be a, could be a song. Um, uh, I, I thought of a song, but I'm not going to sing it to you. Um, you know, does love change things? Uh, and I think for, for most of us, we would be uh, pretty well, uh, can pretty well certain that it does. It, it can change the, uh, the trajectory of your life completely uh, when, there is, when there is love. Love changes things. Love changed uh, me. Um, and uh, once, once upon a time, when, when I was younger and, and uh, passionate and, and full of life, love changed me. I was in college. And as I was sitting in college and doing my, my college things, hanging out with my college bros, uh, I was impacted by a lovely young lady that you might know um, that changed me, right? That, that, that changed me. Um, and as we, we got to know each other, and that love began to blossom and, and take root as uh, we learned from popular culture and media and good songs and things like that, and love developed, and truthfully, I I just kind of don't know how it happened, right? How does love just happen? How did did it occur? Um, But I'm pretty sure that I'm the one who loved her first, because I'm the one who really pressed and pursued her for many of years before she knew it. And as I continued to pursue her and we started uh, dating, this love began to change me. Uh, my, my bros were, were, were getting worried about me. Um, they thought there was something wrong with me, because there was, there still is. Uh, there was something wrong with me, um, and, and because my, everything was just kind of being consumed around this person, right? Um, I had to really buckle down on my classes and focus hard, because even my time was being consumed by this, by this person. Um, I even spent money on dates, right? I mean, this, like my, now my financially is just kind of going over uh, to, to in the pursuit of this, this love that I was in experiencing. Um, for some who may not understand this, I, for me it was a big deal, but I even rolled my windows up on my truck and turned the air conditioning on for her, right? That was a rare thing for me. You know, that, I, that's how you kind of, that's how I kind of knew. It's like, wait, I'm rolling up my windows. I'm doing all these things I never do. And I'm like, whoa, you know, there's something different about her, right? Um, I was cheap. What can I say? Uh, in the summertime, when we were apart, I would, I would drive three hours. She knows who I'm talking about. Um, I would drive three hours just to be with her for like two. Just, just, 
is round trip, yeah. So three there, three back. Thanks for the clarification. She sounds indignant now because of it. Um, and, and then there was that one summer, which was actually, I think this was all in the same summer, to be honest with you. I, I, I decided to take everything I could money-wise and save up to buy something that truthfully as a dude, I just kind of thought was they're the most useless things in the world, but a piece of jewelry, right? For that kind of money. And then all of a sudden here I am buying something so anti-Ben, right? Buying something like, the, why? Because love had changed me. Love had changed me. And at that point I wanted, I didn't want to spend those three hours or six hours driving anymore. I didn't want that, right? I couldn't, I couldn't stand being away from her. Love changed me. Uh, and we got married eventually, right? So my wife, so this is another person I'm talking about. It's Christina, right? Not to be confused. Uh, and then, then after that, love changed me so much in, in, in marriage and it's continually doing that and bringing so much sanctification. Five years later, almost to the day, today, almost to today, we, we had a baby. I mean, you, you're talking about like, you're talking about life-changing, right? A life-changing love. It alters everything. And then two years later, we had another one changed again. Right? We just thought, okay, the same kind of thing. Just bring them in. No big deal. Nope. Changes it again. Changes it again. Continues to change. And then three years later, the one who's still changing us, <laughs> the, one who's teaching, the one who's teaching us much about sanctification and grace, um, and then, and then two years later after that, was it two years, two years, and then we got, a, we, we got another one. Love changes things. Love changes things. Now, and as awesome that is, and it's such a great story that it is, and maybe one day we'll sit down and, and we'll, I'll tell you the whole thing if you're interested to know. But as, as great as that love is, and that kind of love I want to brag on that has changed me, that, that love kind of just comes natural. It, it's the kind of love that, um, that's, Given the right circumstance, it was easy. Because it was, it was easy for me, for being a young man, to see a hot girl in the school, was easy for me to be attracted. It was easy when you're holding your child. It was easy to love, to feel love, and to feel that, that, that exhilaration and excitement and that devotion. To, to, to love is easy, not much sacrificed to, to gain that kind of love. Sometimes it's hard to maintain, right, when it's tested, but love came easy. So this kind of love is, is, is not ordinary. Billions of people, you don't have to be a Christian to experience this kind of love. But in the gospel, in the gospel we find a different kind of love. A love that is completely unique and unordinary, and as my outline, unnatural and unconventional. A love that is unique and different. So as we look at our passage this morning, and we see Jesus as he continues this sermon on the plain, he's going to lay out for this ethic of love. Right? This, this standard of how we are to love. This scope of how we are to love as Christians. And what we're going to see is that this love is unordinary. It is super ordinary. It is extraordinary. 
It's a love that is hard to comprehend. Let's look at verse 27. Let's read these together. But I say to you, who here love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to strike to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do, to, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is it at to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is it to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who, whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. The blaring phrase in this passage, of course, is titled for most of us in our Bibles, is to love your enemies. To love your enemies. And so we've, we've, we've heard this phrase before many times, to love your enemies. It would be safe to say that many of us have heard this passage We've heard Jesus say crazy things like this before, kind of like last week, the, the blessings and the woes, right? It's the, it's the exact opposite of what is the norm, the, the, the norm of what we, what we want or maybe even sometimes would expect. Um, the parallel version of this in Matthew 5 says, you, you heard that it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was the expectation. The expectation to hate your enemy. But Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Right? This isn't the kind of, uh, of, of cliche that we would put on a coffee cup. It's not the kind of thing that you would, you would, you'll, you're going to find at Hobby Lobby on one of those cool looking signs that you would hang up in your house to love one's enemy. This passage, when taught most of the time, is, is dealt with in kind of unhelpful and unbiblical ways. And, and I think that this is kind of the same idea. We want to take these teachings of Jesus and we want to turn them in unhelpful and, and unbiblical uh, ways. And we want to turn it into this a program of external behavioral modification. Right? Do these things. Right? Do, do better at being a Christian. Right, we, we've labeled this from the, the, almost the inception of our, uh, of our gathering in our church as moral therapeutic deism, MTD. Right? When we say MTD, this is what we mean. Moral therapeutic deism. But this is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying for, for this external, moral uh, um, 
uh, way of, of, of doing better and being a better Christian and feeling better about yourself. But Jesus is teaching us about what radical heart transformation looks like. In fact, we can even look forward, and, and I think I put it up on, it will be up on the screen. But if you look forward in chapter 6, look at verse 43. Jesus talks about the tree and the fruit. So there's, the, there's the, 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 the good tree that produces good fruit, and there's the bad tree that produces bad fruit, right? And so whatever, it, whatever that tree is, if, it, if it's a tree that has bad roots, bad genetics, whatever it may be, it's going to produce lousy fruit, or it's not going to produce fruit at all. If it's a good tree with good roots, good soil, good genetics, then it will produce good fruit. And Jesus says each tree will be known by its fruit. Bad trees will produce bad fruit and good trees will inevitably produce good fruit because that good fruit of the tree is consistent with its nature, what it is. So all of our behaviors, all the words that we speak, all our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions, and, and in this case, and loving our enemies, this new kind of unordinary, unnatural love will surely reveal to us the motivations and loves of our hearts. It will reveal our nature. So any attempt to live out these commands that Jesus gives us must come from a heart that is captivated by grace. Must be captivated by grace. That heart that is regenerated. A heart that is transformed and made new. So in that scope, in that light, these, these, uh, these things that Jesus is teaching us, this idea of loving our enemies, is something that is possible. In, in this passage, um, I turn the page here and look at the verses 43. Uh, in this, in this, uh, this passage here, so we, we're encountered with this word love. Right? We are, we've been kind of talking about, uh, about love. In, in the Greek, there's, there's four main usage for the word love. Some of you all might have heard this before. Uh, the, first, the first use is, to, is the kind of love that is for, um, for natural beauty, um, it, it's kind of the, like almost relational sometimes too, where it's just kind of natural, it just kind of happens. Uh, like me for my kids, or like you go outside, you see nature and just, uh, just beautiful things. And, and it's just those things that we feel that, we, um, uh, that we, we love. So this first word is this, this for natural affection uh, for things. Uh, the second uh, way it's used uh, is to describe romantic love. So there's a difference between um, those type of love, this relational uh, love or natural beauty from um, a, a, a romantic love. And then there's another word, the, the phleo. Y'all have heard of that one, Philadelphia. Brotherly love, friendship, right? So there's love that we have for our friends that is different from the way that we would love our children, that we would love uh, beauty, that we would love our, our, our wives and our, our husbands and things like, uh, things like that. But then there is this other way. The word that Jesus uses here, this different word, and it's actually one of the main words throughout the Bible, particularly the New Testament, in, in describing love, and that is agape love, a word that has been overdone and overused, unfortunately, but maybe we can recover some of its biblical meaning this morning. This type of love, this type of love is, is how Jesus is saying that, um, 
four is it at? Where did I, where did I, where did I put this at? Yeah, here it is. Okay. Uh, this this uh, agape love is, is different because it is a self-sacrificial love. It's, it's a love that, that finds, its, um, that finds its, its way to those who are undeserving. It's unmerited. It's not based upon someone's worthiness. It's not based upon the worthiness of someone, the person who is to be loved. It is a love that is deliberate, though. It is one that is rooted in a, in a choice to love. That's a powerful love, isn't it? It's a, it's a powerful love. It finds its height in when we choose loving this way. To love our enemies in the way that Jesus taught us to love. It's quite unfortunate, though, that our word love in our culture has just kind of become another junk drawer word. And we, we use it so much, we, we use it so much that it's lost its meaning. It, it loses its meaning so quickly because we, we use the same word, unlike the Greeks did, we use the same word to describe how we love our wives or we love our husbands or we love our children, and then idiomatically we'll say, I love Taco Bell. I don't know why Taco Bell just kind of comes up when I think of love, but it's good food, right? Someone's got to love Taco Bell. Uh, or other things, right? Or I love fill in the blank, right? And we, we'll use it, and it kind of becomes this, this junk drawer word. And if you don't understand body language or even culture and understand things, like if you kind of just step into our world and people are talking like that, they're going to think you're nuts and you actually don't love your wives and your husbands. So Jesus is describing for us a, a, a different kind of love. Look, look how he says it here. Look how he tells us that it is how it is unnatural. Look at verse 27. It says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. To do good to those who hate you. So we love our enemies with our actions. Those who hate us, we love them with our Actions. When I think about those who, who have hated me, who have slandered me, who have been against me, who are not for my good or my family or whatever it may be, it's hard for me to imagine that I'm going to do good for them. It's unnatural. It's hard for me to imagine that I will do, do good for them. How unnatural these things is. We, we want to seek our own good, not the good of those who hate us. But this says seek their good over your own. Not occupied with, with, your, with, with hate, with the hate that's coming your way and trying to justify yourself or the different ways that you will suffer, but rather to do good to them. So this love is shown in a, in unnaturally in our actions. The second way is we show it in our words. Look at verse 28. He says, bless those who curse you. <laughs> bless those who curse you. Talk about unnatural. How unnatural is that? How foreign is this in, in, in our culture? How foreign is this even in, our, even in our own hearts? It rubs so against it where everyone is seeking to get their strikes in, to get their licks in, to justify themselves, to prove that they are right and they can never be wrong and it doesn't matter. Destroy the enemy at all costs. Twitter, 149 characters. Whatever it takes. 
but not here. Jesus says, bless those who are cursing you. Bless those who are slandering you. Bless those who are belittling you. Those who are gossiping about you. Isn't Jesus just a wonderful example of this? That even hanging on the cross, he practiced what he preached. We also, number three, is by our prayers. Verse 28 continues, also pray for those who abuse you. So what's the best way? What's the best way we can bless someone that we want to body slam? You pray for them. It's, it's, it's kind of impossible. It's kind of impossible to seek your own retribution when you are praying for someone. This type of love is unnatural. I mean, think about how foreign this is in our own hearts. This type of love is unnatural. It's, the, it's a love that does good. It blesses and it prays for our enemies. It almost seems like it's supernatural, doesn't it? Like, good for Jesus that he can do that. But it's not reality for me. Let's continue. So the first, this love is unconventional or un, uh, unnatural. Second, is this love is unconventional. Someone found it's unconventional. When I was when I was uh, younger, I'll give you another example for me. Uh, I know it's hard to believe, but I used to get picked on a lot when I was a kid, and uh, there was a few unkind names that I had, just a few, and I'm not going to tell you, Kelly. Um, I'm not going to tell any of y'all because you will use them. That's right. That's right. Um, all right. I had lots of un, 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 unkind names that were used to, to make fun of me. And yeah, they hurt, of course, no matter how much I tried to build up my, my defenses and, you know, let, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but, you know, names never hurt me kind of thing. And, you know, water run over the back and stuff like that. As much as I tried to build up my defenses, uh, it still was hurtful and hard to deal with. And this was before the time of the anti-bullying campaigns, and now they got the anti-bullying emoji, and I mean, like, that's really going to help. Uh, someone's picking on me emoji. I don't get that, but um, it, we didn't have all that. But in my own little warped mind, I, I decided that a good defense is a good offense. There's some sports teams that can learn that, by the way, uh, that a good defense is a good offense. And, and so I began to build up my offense. And I said to myself, it doesn't matter who says it to me, no matter how big they are or who they are or who they, whatever they may be, uh, I'm going to come back at them tenfold, right? With, you know, if they hit me with words, I'm going to hit them with ten words, right, kind of thing. And, you know, that worked sort of okay. Uh, it backfired a couple times. Um, I survived. I'm here. Um, and, and I was actually really grateful I had an older brother who would only tolerate so much, you know, his brother being picked on and made fun of and things like that, or even punched, uh, where he would actually step in, and, and my brother was awesome in, in doing that. But, I, but I, re, I, I survived. But what I began to realize in this anger and in this rage that began to just really build up in me and want to seek my own retribution and revenge was that it became more consuming to me than even the hurtful words that they said. It began to hurt me more of what I was doing to myself than what other people were, were doing to me. That's our, our natural response when people speak out against us and want to belittle us. We have this reaction that we want to have. We have this idea of, if you slap me, then I'm going to break your neck. 
metaphorically, right, in our culture, metaphorically, I'm going to break your neck. If you steal my shirt, I'm going to chop your hand off, right, kind of, kind of idea, no, not holding back. The, the Old Testament, though, gave, us, um, gave, gave the world a, a new response to, to evil, a new response to retaliation. In fact, it's called the law of retaliation, lex talionis, which means that there's lim- uh, limitations to, to how we retaliate. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So it's no longer tenfold against someone. If you bust my tooth out, I'm going to just bust out one of your teeth, not ten, kind of thing, right? An improvement, yes. Restored fairness, yes. Just, yes. But Jesus calls for a love that goes beyond what is conventional. That's what it goes beyond what is conventional. And he gives us four examples, right? He continues in verse 29, giving us four examples. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other. Right? (laughs) Now here's what I think he means here. I don't think Jesus is speaking necessarily in a very literal way. If someone punches you in the face, you are to offer the other one. I don't. I think what he's thinking is metaphorically when someone slaps you, that's a, that's a huge insult, right? It's a huge insult, particularly in their culture. If you backhand someone, that's like the greatest form of insult. And so I think what he's getting at is someone disrespects you in that kind of way where it feels like a, like a backhanded slap, which sometimes can be worse than that, that we do not fight for our own dignity, but we remain engaged to stand for Christ and to be vulnerable continue to be vulnerable, even though there may be these kind of deep insults to our character, this is how we respond unconventionally. Verse 29 continues with the second example. Someone takes your cloak. Give them them your tunic. Right? And I think this example kind of goes along with the, uh, the same idea. That, you know, the disciple is assaulted and someone takes his, his jacket, he, he shouldn't defend himself. That's what it kind of sounds like. But I think it goes along with the first example is that when we are personally attacked, our response then as, as Christians is not for our own well-being and trying to defend ourselves, but we are to think about our attackers and our haters. And we're to meet them with generosity and open-heartedness, continually loving them, preaching to them, teaching them the gospel, showing them the, the gospel. And the third and fourth example go along in verse 30. They go together. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from everyone who takes away your goods, and do not demand them back. So this is the, the broad scope of, of, of our generosity as Christians, as we've been transformed by the gospel in such a way that we love to give away and not just even loan. Our love is not just for our possessions, but it is for people and for others. This is the broad, how, un, how unconventional it is Jesus is showing us on how we are to love and what agape love looks like. So Jesus is telling us that when we become a Christian, or this is actually a question, Is he asking us that when we become a Christian that we are to give up our rights for personal defense and a right to our own personal property? Kind of sounds like that, right? Like we're just to be there for the plundering of everybody. And and the world just hasn't figured that out yet completely. Or we would just have to give everything over if we were going to be obedient to Jesus. Now this is why this is highly unlikely. right? This is why I think this is highly unlikely. I just want to deal with this because I think this is where it's totally misinterpreted. Interpreted. 
um, that it's not for liberal applications is this. So would you tell a woman who is being abused by her husband she should just turn the other cheek? No, right? No, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't do that, right? Would we, would we get, continually give money to a drug addict that we know is a drug addict, that we know are using to buy drugs that will continue to enslave them in their addictions, right? They beg you, as Jesus says, they beg you, you give them, you, you give them more. No, I don't think that's the case at all. So no one, no one, no, no Christ-like love would, would, would compel us to do these things. We wouldn't give a money to, the, to someone who's addicted. We wouldn't continue to, we wouldn't counsel a woman to remain in abuse. So rather what we see here is we see Jesus using very extreme situations, isn't he? I mean, we're using very extreme situations in order to help us make sense on how serious this kind of love is. Does that make sense? He's trying to tell us this is how serious that this kind of love is, that even faced with the worst of enemies before you, when you are faced with the most extreme situation, when you are in the heat of the moment of insults and wrongs toward you as a, as a Christian, our response still is this love that is generous and forbearing and patient and gracious. And the baseline of that love is verse 31. The golden rule. The golden rule, as you wish others would do to you, do to them. We all demand justice, don't we, when justice is needed? But what about when justice is needed in our own life? We want what? We want mercy. Give mercy. Don't always seek justice. Be merciful. And this love is rewarding. It's unnatural, it's unconventional, it's rewarding. Verse 32, it continues right there. It says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that for you? For sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who from you expect and receive, what credit is that for you? Even sinners lend to get the same amount back. And this is what I saying, was saying earlier. You don't, need to have trans, you don't need to be transformed to love like that. You don't need to be a Christian to, to, to love like that. Believe it or not, Hitler loved like that. He had people in his life that he loved like that. This is not a, that's not an ordinary love, is what Jesus is telling us. Loving your enemies is an unordinary love. Anyone can love like that. Anyone can be generous and expect them to pay them back. That kind of love, in a sense, is cheap. But this love is, this gospel love, this, what we see in the gospel, this infused love of, of Jesus is something that's not cheap. It comes at a great price, doesn't it? It comes at the price of your insults. It comes at the price of you losing maybe even your own goods, your own well-being, your families, whatever it may be. But verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Our reward is great. That reward is the, the greatest of all rewards. I'm going to tell you in just a few moments what that, what that means. 
our reward is great. So, this is where we can start when we ask this really perplexing question that I've kind of been hinting at. Is this kind of love for us possible? How can we love like this? First, to understand this, to understand this, this idea of loving this way, we've got to kind of catch that, that second part in verse 35. I'll get back at verse 35. It says, And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. So that's our, our reward. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Who are the ungrateful and the evil? So to understand this, we need to understand that we were the enemies that God loved. That we are the ungrateful. That we are the, the evil that God loved like this. That seems so unnatural and so unconventional that this is how God loved us. We need to understand that we were once the enemies of God and yet He loved us. God's love is so distinctive, so unnatural and unconventional that He pursues and saves us but through the sacrificial giving of His own Son. Not for good people, but for His enemies. Look to Romans chapter 5. Turn your Bibles over to Romans chapter 5. It's very important for us to see this. Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 6. We see this argument being made for us by the Apostle Paul. Verse 6, he says, while we were still weak, weak meaning we were unable to do anything about our situation. Weak, unable, cannot do. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Right? The opposite of godly. Unholy, wicked, evil, ungrateful. Verse 7. For one will scarcely die. He's making an argument for us here. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one will even dare to die. This is what I think Jesus was getting at. The kind of love that just kind of comes naturally. That it may be natural for us to lay down our lives for, for others that we love. I would happily live, lay down my life for my family. That, that's kind of the thing that we would, we would see as natural and conventional. Paul's making that argument that this is possible, but God. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners... Unable to keep the law, weak, evil, ungodly, Christ died for us. Verse 9. Since therefore we now have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, while we were enemies, Haters, abusers, thieves, beggars. All these things that Jesus says that we are to take. 
We were these things to God, but in a cosmic way. In a greater way that could never bring reconciliation of ourselves outside of His love. By His own life, as it says here in verse 10. We shall be saved by His life. Jesus loved us not only when we were just indifferent to Him, but He loves us in that we were actual enemies of Him. Enemies of His holiness and His grace. All of us are enemies of God. There's no middle ground. There's no lesser ground. There's no difference between the good old American unbeliever and even the the jihadist in the Middle East. There's no difference. They're all enemies of God. Little children outside of Christ are enemies of God. Rebellious enemies. It's not our self-righteousness. It's not our moral goodness that we work our whole lives to be. We're all placed in this category of enemies of God. It's all vain seeking our own self-righteousness to earn our own justification. It's an affront to God. Verse 8, but God, but God showed his love for us that even though we were still sinners, what does it say? He sent his son to die in our place that we in our rebellion and self-righteousness can be reconciled before God. Let me just ask you a question. What Greek word do you think he's saying here when he says love? Yeah, agape. unmerited, unearned, deliberate, chosen love. The enemies of God then become the objects of his love. What is this love? What is this love? What is the love of God? How can it be defined? Many would would define God's love as being unconditional that it's patient, that it's steadfast, that it's unearned. It accepts us as we are. It accepts us as broken and dirty and needy. And as we've been talking about last week, that we are impoverished. But I want you to know that God's love is not just unconditional towards you, but that it's way better than unconditional. Telling someone that God's love is, is unconditional, as uh, David Pallison says, that, to, that is to say that you're going to describe someone the sun, you're going to turn off the lights and you're going to turn on a flashlight and say that's what the sun's like. It brings light in the darkness. But what David says, it, it, compl- that, that, it, it will kind of get to the point, but it does nowhere near to the difference of just rolling up the window shades. That's the sun. That's what the sun does. Here's a few short reasons why I think it falls short. Unconditional does not go, unconditional love doesn't go as far as we see in the scriptures. Unconditional gives us a vague description compared to what the scriptures give us, vivid details and stories and images and metaphors of the the deep, specific love of God like we see in Romans 5. What about Hosea? The teachings here in Luke chapter 6. Deep, vivid images, metaphors of the love of God toward his enemy. Second, 
Unmerited grace is not strictly only unconditional. How do we experience the grace of the love of God? It's in Christ alone. This love is experienced in Christ alone. It's it's based on Christ's conditions that he met. The conditions that we could not meet, Christ met perfectly. Christ was perfectly obedient to the moral law of God, which we could never do. And then he was perfectly uh, obedient to his Father in the substitutionary death that he met on the cross. Christ met these conditions. And unconditional often misses the person and work of Jesus. And often, at best, it just diminishes it. A gospel without the person and work of Christ is not the gospel. It's what the Reformers fought for. Christ alone. We can't miss that. God's love is intended to change us. It's intended to to change us, whereas unconditional love just kind of implies you're okay. I don't know if any of y'all have seen it, but there's a sign that a church has on their, up by the road up, up, on, um, up past Waynesboro, and it said, God loves you no matter what, or something like that. Anybody familiar with that? Ever seen that? Uh, it doesn't matter what you've done. And, and you, you know, it's kind of like you kind of read it, and you're like, oh, that makes me feel good. And you're like, ah, something's not, you kind of feel dirty a little bit when you read it. Because you just think there's something not right, because it doesn't deal with, with what's really broken, what's, what's really wrong with our, with, what's wrong with me. It doesn't deal with that. And this is kind of the idea of the unconditional. It just kind of implies that you're okay. And what we talked about last week, yes, it is okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. But the gospel says something completely different, that even though we were enemies, that we were not okay, God does what? He reconciles us. He reconciles us. He he welcomes us in, and then he transforms us. And he continues to transform us through sanctification. God's love has a point to it. The bare fruit. And the last one, unconditional love these days, unfortunately, has so much cultural baggage to it, doesn't it? And we have to be careful with that word, with with, with these things we throw around, because our cultures here, when they hear it, they hear tolerance. They hear acceptance. They hear affirmation. They hear you're okay. You know, it's, all, it's often coupled with the idea that, um, that unconvention, unconditional love, if you love me unconditionally, then you can't impose any kind of moral, a moral system on me or you can't impo- impose any kind of, uh, uh, any kind of uh, systematic belief. Right? If, 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 if you love me unconditionally, then you're not going to impose any, anything on me. And, and, you know, bull. (laughs) You live in my house, I love you, and because I love you, I'm going to impose on you. Hopefully for your good. And for the rest of culture's good. Alright, that's what unconditional has. But the gospel, the gospel goes deeper. It's better than than unconditional love. Here's another quote by David Pallison. He says, the gospel is better than unconditional love. The gospel says God accepts you just as Christ is. God has contrary conditional love for you. Christ bears the curse you deserve. 
Christ is fully pleasing to the Father and gives you His own perfect goodness. Christ reigns in power, making you the Father's child and coming close to you and begin to change what is unacceptable to God about you. Listen to this next, this next statement. God never accepts me just as I am. He accepts me as I am in Christ. I, was, I know you guys are kind of like, I'm offended. I sang that song, right? You're kind of offended there for a second. Huh? Yeah. We were kind of offended, right? God accepts me as we are in Christ. The center of gravity then completely changes, doesn't it? The true gospel does not allow God's love to be sucked into a vortex of the soul's lust for being accepted and finding its worth in itself. Rather, it radically decenters people. And it's what this is what the, God, the Bible calls the fear of the Lord and what faith looks like. I had it on a cool screen. You could have put it up. Oh, well, no, that was the illustration. This is different. That was a good quote. You guys could have been reading it with me. Awesome. I mean, that, that's, that's the gospel right there, right? I love that. I love that, that, that it just doesn't leave us there. It, it brings us in and says, here you go. Here's, here's Jesus' name tag. You get him. The, the glory and the goodness of the gospel and being loved by God is that we get him. We get him. And if we're looking for anything else, then we're not going to get anything. And so when we see in verse 31, I'm almost done. When we see in verse 31, it says, Be merciful for even as your Father is merciful. This answers our question. Is it possible? Can we do this? How can we do this? We look like our Father is what we do. We've been, we've been loved in, in, in such a way, Jesus has loved us in, in such a way, and shown us a love in such a way that although we were enemies, that we have been loved in such a way that He sent His one and only Son, that we can be like our Father. That we can be merciful Matthew says, be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Because we've been loved. The enemies have been loved. Loving our enemies is difficult. I mean, that, that word just kind of even falls short, doesn't it? And, and to be honest, it's, it, loving in general sometimes can just be really hard, even when it should be natural. Loving our enemies can, will, be, will hurt, it will be painful, and yes, it will cost you. But to love our enemies is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. It's what transformation does. It's a glorious fruit of the gospel that, that springs up from humility and the joy of knowing the love of God toward you. You who were once enemies of God. And isn't it encouraging that the kind of love that he has called us to is a love that Jesus exampled for us perfectly, isn't it? And when we're lacking in that area, we can look to who? To Jesus. 
It's a, it's a love that's completely foreign, and it's unnatural, it's unconventional, it's completely, it's, it's completely foreign, but it's completely consistent with who Christ is. And it's completely consistent of Christ who is in you. So no longer then by the weakness of our flesh, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit, we simply live out, we simply live out the kind of love that we have received from the Father whose Spirit now lives in us. When we are hated, when we are abused, when we are slandered, when we are taken advantage of, when we are disrespected, then there is a reservoir of grace for us to draw. A reservoir of grace to draw from in the Holy Spirit. And when we do, we will be able to love our enemies like never before, with boldness and joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us this morning most importantly see the standing that we have with you in Christ. That we understand the deep, deep love of Jesus toward us. That came at such a great of cost. While we were sinners, you sent your Son Lord, let us be shaken by these, these very truths. Very, these very truths that, that can change our life. It's a, it's a love that will radically change our life unlike any other love. And Lord, to a culture that, a culture that, that hates us in many ways or is indifferent, I pray that you would help us to love that even in the small imperfect ways that they will be, we would love them with our generosity, with our prayers, with our blessings, with our actions. And it all be for your glory and your glory alone. Father, we thank you for our time. Thank you for your word. Give us grace and mercy as we respond. In Jesus' name, amen.